Open your Bibles to Isaiah. We are in the 52nd chapter. You know, the Bible gives us many beautiful images when it describes the church. And each of these images, there's a complexity to them. There's, there's certain meanings for them. And yet, they are simple in what they are and what they say. And, and very understandable. We can all relate to them. And this is all at the same time. This part of the, the beauty of God's Word. You know, there are places where the Bible represents, presents the church as a family. With God as our Father, and, and you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, we've been adopted into God's family. We are His children and we can all mostly understand that. For the most part, we, we, we granted, all families have issues, all pro- families have problems, all families have, have weird uncles. That's just the way it is. But still, we understand that idea of, of having a family. This image is, it's easy to understand, it's, it's complex, yet it's, in its structure and its implications are huge. The church is sometimes called the body. With Jesus as the head... And we are all members of the body. That's why we, you know, a hand can't tell a foot, I don't need you. We you know we, we're all interconnected. We're all, we're not all the same. We're not all hands. We're not all feet. We're not all arms. We're different parts of the body because we come together and we become a complete body with Christ at our head. And we can understand that metaphor. Again, but it's, it's com- complex in its interactions of the different parts of the body of Christ. Just like our own bodies are very complicated. You start doing some research just on, just on the finger and, and the complexity of the bone structure and, and, and the ligaments and the, and the muscles and the fingerprint and the skin and how that all works. And you start getting even more complex systems in our, in our body, which we're just now really in reality is learning about even more so. We just begin to understand it. The church is also called the bride of Christ, adorned with beautiful jewels and garments. There's always something about on the wedding day, the bride is radiant. In the way that a a husband and wife become one in marriage, you and I are wed to Christ and to God through Jesus Christ. We're sometimes called the temple of God. Living stones quarried out of Satan's kingdom, but masterfully chipped and formed and put together by a master craftsman to form a place where the Holy Spirit can dwell. See, this, this image is even more amazing when you realize that Jesus was more than just a carpenter who worked with wood. According to, according to experts, when, you, when, you, when we see the word carpenter, we think of wood, you know, he, he built houses I wouldn't know. He was probably more of a stonemason. He did more than just carpentry. A carpenter would actually build with stone also. And there was also a small, a small city. There was a city real close to Nazareth that was building at the time. So chances are he and Joseph went over and they built on that city. And they were stonemasons. So Jesus was not this skinny little, he was buff. I mean, he was working with stone. So we are a temple that's being built. We are also a city. City of the living God that continues to grow as we share the gospel with those who don't know Christ. You, you see, a, a, city, a city is more than just its buildings. Just as a home is, is more than just its buildings. Just like this, this church is more than just this building. But a city is made up of its people. 
across Scripture, the city is called Zion, God's city. Jerusalem, the Old Testament of the city was Jerusalem, and it's mentioned 158 times, Zion is. But it's only mentioned seven times in the New Testament. And four of these are references back to the Old Testament. So there's only three times that Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible as a city, because the city is now us. We are the city. So today, we come to this idea of not just a a physical place, not just a physical Jerusalem on Mount Zion, which was the mountain that it was built on, the hills that it was built on, but of the fulfillment of what Zion is supposed to be. We know the story. When God created the heavens and the earth, and he put Adam and Eve in place, he had a plan for it. He had a plan that way it should be. It didn't turn out that way, because God allowed it, And allowed us to have free will. And sometimes we're pretty good at following God's will. Sometimes we're not. And that's why the world is the way it is. And why we're we're rushing towards a place where God's going to have to come back in. He's going to step in. He's going to take care of it. Bring it back in line to what it's supposed to be. But see, we're supposed to be flourishing and perfect as the heavenly Jerusalem. And as we we look at these verses, I, I want us to understand that God is is talking about the historic Jerusalem. He's talking to the people of Jerusalem who who were in captivity. He's trying to give them hope. But at the same time, we find ourselves in a very similar position where we need the hope today. It's not easy to find hope. We we, we can't hope in the things of this world. We cannot hope in our leaders. I don't care if it's a leader. I don't care if it's the president, if it's the mayor, if it's the the leaders in a congregation, if it's the leaders in a church, it doesn't matter. You cannot find hope in them because they're human and they will fail you. It's just what it is. They're not God. But we can find hope in God and God's tell, talking to Jerusalem, and he's talking to the, the Israelites, and he's, he's talking to us at the same time of where we are. Because we're going to become part of the future Jerusalem. So let's look at verse chapter 52. Starting with verse 1. We're just going to do the first 10 verses. We're going to be in chapter 52 for a couple weeks. It says, awake, awake. Well, obviously, if he's asking us to awake, what does that mean? It means we're asleep. We talked about that last week. It was again, awake, awake. There's something. We have been asleep. The people here are asleep. And we're asleep. He says, awake, awake. Put on strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. See, right right there we know that while God is talking to the Israelites back in captivity, this has not happened yet. Jerusalem today is not full of only holy people. There are the, the, uh, the unholy and the uncircumcised, meaning, and I don't just mean physically, I mean spiritually uncircumcised, that are in Jerusalem. So this is a future prophecy. He says, shake yourself from the dust And arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. Lose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. We are told to awake twice. How many of you find it hard to wake up in the morning? How many of you find it hard to wake up somebody else in the morning? Does mom have to come and shake you to wake you up? Right, Caleb? All right. It's hard to wake up. 
Sometimes, some days, like this morning, I woke up at 6.30 without my alarm even going off, which surprised me after all the work I did yesterday. I was very tired and hurting. But I did. I woke up at 6.30. Other days, like Friday, I slept till 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, we set an alarm. You know, I don't know how many times I've, I've set an alarm, and I either sleep through the alarm, or I go over and I hit the alarm thinking I'm hitting the snooze bar, going to get nine more minutes of sleep, which really doesn't matter. It doesn't give you a whole lot more sleep. Instead, I've turned the alarm off, and I'm, whoop, I'm back out. And I wake up about five minutes before I have to leave. It happens. We are all like this in some ways. But God has a very important a very important message for the Israelites and for us. He says, put on strength. Now, there's interesting, think about that, the phrasing of that. Put on strength. He doesn't say, be stronger. He doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and become a strong person. No, he says, put on on strength. So strength does not come from inside here. Strength comes from outside here. Because if it, if it was coming from me, I, I mean, I, I just, have to, you know, you know, think of the Hulk. When the Hulk gets mad, he gets, gets green, he gets strong. You know, it comes from inside of him. That's not what happens. He says, put it on. That means it's outside of me. I have to put it on. Put on strength. When God is writing, he's talking to the Israelites. Jerusalem had been defiled by the pagan Babylonians. Literally, they raped, they pillaged the city. They removed all the gold that they could find in the treasury. Then they went to the temple and with axes started taking an axe to the gold that was plating everything in the temple. They completely destroyed the temple and took all the gold off of it. Now we can get into a side talking about the Ark of the Covenant, which wasn't there because they recorded everything that they took and the Ark of the Covenant wasn't included in it. That's a whole rabbit trail to go down. But we do know they took all the gold that was in the temple and they tore it down. They would take the wooden parts of the temple and they used it as tinder. So the, the, the sacred the acacia wood, which was beautiful wood, and the cedar that came from... from um, Lebanon, <laughs> I got it sooner or later, came from Lebanon. They cut it up and they used it as tinder to burn the temple. That'd be like taking the pews to burn the church. Taking the cross down off the wall to burn the church. Taking this table, cutting it up with an axe, and then burning it to burn the church down. It was defiled. But the time of defilement has come to an end. It's done. Zion's being called to rise back up again to its former glory. And yes, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Because of the decree of Cyrus the Great, the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem. And this occurs in Ezra and Nehemiah. which is not how you say his name in Hebrew. I can't remember whether it's not Nehemiah. It's, it's a different, different way of saying it. But needless to say, they struggle. In fact, if you read Nehemiah, which is a great book, I, I suggest you read it if you haven't read it. In Nehemiah, they're having to build their houses and the wall with one hand with a hammer, and they have a sword in the other hand because they are under so much duress from the people around. They're trying to keep them from building this. 
but they persevere. Constant trouble all the way around. Ezra had rebuilt the temple, but the walls of Jerusalem had not been rebuilt. But even that, even the temple, the people were weeping bitterly. Why? They weren't happy because the temple had been rebuilt. They were sad because it didn't even begin to match the magnificence of Solomon's temple. But it's all they could do. But look what it says in verse 1. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. How strange is that? Is it true? How can it be true? Yes, everything was rebuilt, but we know that in 70 AD, the Romans completely destroyed the temple. You go to Jerusalem today, you find these places along the side of the Temple Mount where these big stones are. Those are the stones that were thrown down from the top by the Romans, which is interesting because Jesus says not one stone will remain of this temple when the, when the apostles were praising how beautiful it was. It was thrown down. It was destroyed. It was defiled. And to this day, that temple has not been rebuilt. So this cannot be talking about the historical city of Jerusalem. It must be a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. So we jump forward in the Bible to Revelation chapter 21. And this is talking about the new Jerusalem. And it says, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Hmm. You ever try to sleep during the day? Bright lights? We won't have to sleep. There'll be no night. They will, bring, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What God had prophesied back in Isaiah, as he's talking to the Israelites, he will fulfill in Revelation when the new heaven and the new earth come down. So Isaiah is looking forward to the day when the city of Zion is going to completely rebuild and be free and forever free from all the enemies. And it will not only that, it will radiate light. Now understand that light comes from Christ, God who is our light. The day has yet to come, but one day it will be here. And I believe we will see it if you're a believer. And have given your life to Christ. And you and I as believers in Christ, we one day will be part of that city. We are created in God's, God's image, living on this world, but one day we'll be, enter, be able to enter the gates and bring glory, the glory of Christ, into that city. The uncircumcised of heart, the defiled, the unredeemed, they're, they're not going to be able to enter. They can't. In fact, they can't because their place of abode, their place where they live, will be the lake of fire. There's only two options. Salvation through Christ or eternal fire by sin. Revelation 20 
says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in it. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown to the lake of fire, which means there's no more death. No more Hades, which is the, the temporary place waiting for the second coming. Or, yeah, that's a whole other sermon. This is the second death. Because the, the death when they were thrown to the lake of fire, that's the second death. It's the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How do you get your name book, in the book of life? It's not, about, it's not about what you know. It's about who you know. Do you know Jesus? That's the only way to get your name on, in the book of life, is if you know him and trust him and surrender your life to him. That's it. If we trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, we will be able to walk through the gates. Our names are in the book. And this new Jerusalem becomes our, our new home because our names are in that book. Let's jump back to Isaiah, verse 3. It says, For thus says the Lord. When, when the Old Testament prophet says, For thus saith the Lord, that means God is speaking. He says, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there which means to travel in there, to be visitors there. It wasn't permanent. It wasn't supposed to be permanent. And the Assyrians oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here? Because, Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. You know, the Israelites have had a, a very constant history of struggles and strife and slavery. You know, when they were in Egypt, they came down to Egypt because Joseph was there and there was a famine. And, and Pharaoh looked kindly on them because of Joseph and he gave them Goshen. But after time, people forget. And the newer Pharaohs after many years, after Joseph had died, forgot. And the only thing that the Israelites had done, want, done wrong was they had become very fruitful. And the Egyptians were scared of them. So they decided they'd put him to, put him to slavery. They actually, the first thing they did, they tried to kill him. All the males, babies. And they experienced, for no reason at all, they experienced slavery in Egypt. And later the oppression under the Assyrians and ultimately the captivity by the Babylons was only caused by the enslavement to other gods and goddesses and to sin and wickedness. And what did Israel get for their devotion to other gods? Nothing but trouble. That's something that we have to remember, that there is always something that has to be paid. There's always something that you get for everything you do. You, and, and everything has a consequence. Yes, we can be forgiven of our sins, but you understand that there are human consequences for what we say and what we do. We can't just say we're forgiven and, and, and not worry about it because there are consequences. 
not eternal. We're saved, we're forgiven. But understand that if we kill somebody, we can be forgiven of that. But we have to pay man's laws and we're going to end up in prison. Just the way it is. The Israelites got nothing but trouble for what they had decided to do. And you and I are no different. Look at Romans 6.16. He says, do, this is Paul speaking, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So he's saying, if you're going to give yourself to something, understand you're a slave to it. You're either a sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Oh, I'll just dabble in it over here. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not fully, I'm not fully decrepit. I'm not fully defiled. I'm just partially defiled. No. If you're sinning, if you're actively sinning, you are actively enslaved to it. So we have to be actively enslaved to righteousness. Paul talks about how he, he's, he's no longer a slave to sin. He is, he is a bondservant of Christ. Romans 6, 21 says, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things for which you are now ashamed? What good did that sin do you? What was your wages for it? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. It means leads to being changed more and more like Christ, to be more and more righteous, to be more and more thinking the right way, to be living a life that you should live, a life that's full of joy and full of love and full of great things because of the sanctification that comes with that, the change that's coming along. And it's not instantaneous, it takes time. But sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are our wages for the sin that we give ourselves to? It's death. Not just dying physically, it's eternal death. It is eternal separation from God. We've been sold for nothing. And nothing we do can redeem us from our slavery. So God must redeem us. He must redeem his people. And that's what he does. Since we have received nothing for our slavery to sin, except for death, our redemption will cost us nothing. It doesn't cost us anything in reality. But it's going to cost God greatly. Because 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the church at Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price. Now wait a minute, I thought we didn't have to pay a price. No, you don't. God does. So glorify God in your body. And that price is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Peter, 1 Peter 1, says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. It's not like God paid out silver and gold to the devil because he had you. You weren't bought that way. But you were pay, it was paid with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He, Christ has always been, and now we can know him. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And what, is, what do our former, what does Satan get? Our former master for enslaving us? They get destruction. 
And then that's why they wail. And the result is that Zion will know the Lord. At that point in time, we will have no doubt about the sovereignty and the salvation of God. We debate that now. People debate the sovereignty of God. How, does, how is God sovereign over everything? And yet we still, we still have free will. Are you once saved, always saved, or, or, or do you, are you, can you lose your salvation? I mean, those are discussions that happen all the time amongst the theologians and the thinkers. We debate about it now, but the day is coming where there'll be no doubt we'll have the answer. Paul tells the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now we get to the feet. Verse 7 of Isaiah 52 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now it seems kind of strange to, to speak of feet. We don't, you know, most, unless you're a podiatrist, most people don't really have long conversations about feet. Or unless you're a shoe store salesman or own stock in Nike, you know, you don't usually talk about feet a whole lot. But feet in those days were very dirty and repulsive, as I told the kids. Jesus washed the feet as his disciples as a, as a sign of servanthood. This would not have been a pleasant experience. They had been walking all day. Their feet were dirty, caked with mud and dirt and dust and Just walking along the road, you know, we, we, we're kind of spoiled with shoes because, you know, you can walk and chances are your feet aren't that dirty. But when you have sandals is all you have, open sandals, your feet are going to get dirty. The roads weren't paved. They were usually, if they were paved, it was a stone and there was grass and dirt and it was not a good place to try to keep your feet clean. Mary Magdalene showed her repentance by washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. John the Baptist said that he wasn't even worthy to carry Jesus' sandals, let alone wash his feet. And here we find that feet are beautiful when they bring good news. What do these feet bring? They bring good news, peace, happiness, salvation, the declaration that God is reigning. These, these feet are bringing more than just that good. They're bringing hope. They're bringing the, 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 the word of restoration and symbolizes joy and honor of being one to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And then verse 8, it switches. It says, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. At this time, if, if, usually most cities had walls around them because they need to be protected. And you had watchmen on the, out, on the wall, and they were on the wall 24-7. Somebody was on the wall at all times. And they would watch to see if somebody was coming because it's kind of flat in a lot of places around there. And you, you could see a pretty good distance. Go up to the, to the fire tower down here at the state park. You can see pretty far. 
Not too bad. Go to the top of, you know, One Summit Square, you can see quite a distance. It's pretty amazing. So they're on the, wa- on the wall, and what they see, if they see somebody coming, and they see an army coming, they're going to get excited, right? Because we've got to be, be preparing, and they have a little bit of time. But there's this anticipation and excitement that will surround the return of the church to Zion. The watchmen who wait with vigilance and expectancy will, will shout for joy at the fulfillment of the promises of God. This is why you and I need to be watchmen on the wall. We need to be awake. We need to be watching for things going on in this world that are happening, that are leading to the point where Christ is going to return. And I want to tell you, it's coming, and it's coming fast. I'm I'm getting overwhelmed by the possible things I need to start telling people. I've got to get this all mapped out in my head. And start putting some videos together so I could get this out, these, these words out, because I'm seeing what's happening in the world. And I'm seeing that we're leading. It was just, it's, as quickly as technology is changing the world, we are moving faster and faster to that moment in time when Christ is going to come back. But the watchman has this anticipation. We can t- get a taste of this when we gather to worship here on Sunday morning. We're watchmen on the wall. We're singing about what God is doing, who God is. It should bring joy into our hearts to know that one day we will see him face to face. And then in verse 9, he says here, bring forth together into singing. Worship. You waste places of Jerusalem. He says there are places that are completely devastated, but you know what? They're going to be filled with joy. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. We get this shift from despair. You're in captivity. The, the, the Jerusalem is, is destroyed but there's hope because beautiful are the feet that bring the good news that Christ is coming, that God is redeeming the city, us. The city of Zion. The world will easily bring us to despair. That is the danger in knowing what's and watching what's going on in the world. There's so much garbage out there, so many things that are going wrong, so many people who are trying to control the world. You will get you will get you can get easily overwhelmed by it. I do. Sometimes I just gotta turn it off. I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to watch another news program about the stupidity of this world. But then I have to go back and I have to listen to it because I want to be ready. I'm a watchman on the wall. Because that's not where I find my hope. Again, as I said earlier, you cannot put your hope in man. You cannot put your hope in leaders, whether it's presidents, mayors, councilmen, congress, church leaders, whatever. Don't put your hope in them. My hope is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Psalm 33 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. As I hope more in Christ and less in man, I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to see all the stuff that's going on in the world. I'm going to say, yeah, I understand that, but you guys are doomed. I'm looking at Christ. He's coming back. That's what I'm hoping for. 
Despite the destruction and the desolation in Jerusalem and in our world, we can rejoice in anticipating the return of Christ and the Edenic restoration of the world. It's going to go back to the way it was at Eden, the way it was supposed to be. And this is only possible because of the salvation of God. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 52. It says, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. People today deny God's salvation. People today deny His authority. He has no authority over my life. Really. The day is going to come where you're going to see it. He's going to stretch out His arm, and you're going to see it. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. Even the Jews. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Amen says means so be it. So what do we need to do? We need to be alert. We need to be spiritually awake. The time of sleeping is gone. It's done. We need to be strong in our faith, not because of, of any strength inside of me, but because of the strength that comes from God himself. That's where the strength comes from. We need to be strong in our faith and we need to actively pursue the work that God has for us. We need to take courage in the fact that we have grace and freedom through Christ, that He paid the price for our sins and that God has paid for our redemption. Suffering and adversity is going to be part of the human experience. Jesus says, they persecuted me. What makes you think they won't persecute you because of me? We've been lucky. We've been blessed. We have not been persecuted as much. Just wait. It will come. We're going to face trials in our lives. Many of them, there are two types of trials. We talked about this in a small group this last week. There are two types of trials. There are those trials that are because you did something wrong. Those that did not come from God. He allowed you to go through it because he allowed you to suffer the consequences, but he didn't cause them. You did, because you murdered, because you stole, because you lied, because you sinned. There are consequences, there are trials. But there are other trials that God allows us to go through where he changes us, he stretches us, he grows us, he, he, he pushes us along. Those are some of the trials we are also going to face. But we have to, no matter what, no matter where the trial comes from, we have to remain steadfast in our faith and trust God to deliver us. We are to be messengers of the gospel. How beautiful are your feet. Share the good news. Proclaim his salvation. Be agents of peace and reconciliation to those who are lost. And we got to rejoice in God's salvation. God's comfort and redemption is transformative. His comfort, his redemption changes us from the inside out. It's going to change our sorrow to joy. We can do this by remembering that the, the salvation that was supplied us through Christ on the cross. And lastly, we need to have a heart for missions. We need to pray for the salvation of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. We need to actively participate in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth until Christ returns. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news.